0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Worthum Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armaza. Our guest today is Mahmoud Abdelkader, CEO and co-founder of Very Good Security, a company that's on a mission to protect the world's information by providing essential security and compliance infrastructure for other businesses. Mahmoud is also a serial entrepreneur and an inspiring figure. In this episode, we talk about Mahmoud's journey moving from Egypt to New York City and how he found his love for entrepreneurship, launching Balanced Payments, his first startup over a decade ago, getting into Y Combinator and why every first-time founder should try to go to YC, understanding Very Good Security's mission to secure the world's information, and why they want to make data useful in the same way as money, challenges of unintended side effects of financial and privacy regulation, and what very good security is doing about it, getting comfortable with rejection, and why you should never underestimate the hunger of immigrant entrepreneurs, and just a lot more. And now please join me in an amazing conversation with Mahmoud Abdelkader. Mahmoud, how are you today? And Welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast.
1: Hey, Miguel. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very, very excited to be here. And uh, thank you so much to have me on this awesome podcast.
0: Very excited to chat. And and where are you joining us from? I'm joining you from,
1: uh, in this case, today is a windy San Rafael, San Francisco Bay Area.
0: All right. Very nice. Very nice. Great. So, you know, I'm, I'm excited to chat. There's a lot talk, You're doing many interesting things, but we always like to start from the very beginning. So it'll be good to hear about your story and how you ended up launching very good security. But uh, I know that this wasn't your first rodeo, so there's a story behind uh, VGS.
1: Yeah, I mean, where do we want to start? I'm happy to tell you kind of like how we got to this point. But uh, i tell you a little bit about my history as well. Please, Uh, yeah. Sure. So, well, first, let me tell you kind of like how I grew up a little bit, right? So, you know, I was born in Egypt in a town called Ismailia, which is actually 100 kilometers east of Cairo, right? It's also, you know, where that ship that got stuck in the Suez Canal, that's the city. That's
0: my city. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) wow. So when... When the whole world was looking at it maybe a month or two ago, you you knew exactly where that was.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. <laughs> but, um, and so, you know, so I was born there and then I immigrated to the United States in 1992. Did not know a single word of English. I only knew, like, well, I guess I, that's not true. I knew yes and no, right? <laughs> but, uh, and so I, you know, went through the English second language in New York City. I actually went to New York City, immigrated to Brooklyn, Bay Ridge area went to you know ps185 elementary school and then moved to maryland when i was 14 then uh, i went to the university of maryland i studied computer engineering and right out of college i worked on wall street building algorithmic trading systems and high frequency trading around that area i survived the crash of 2009 but also wanted to like really build something that was really fun. So a college buddy of mine called me up and you know told me about a company called Milo.com that was starting out uh, actually by a Wharton graduate. all right um, Jack Abraham and you know I was number four there uh, grew that to about 35 folks sold it to eBay uh, within a year and a half. And kind of just like set me on my course to really evaluate kind of like how to really make something happen with entrepreneurship. So we got into Y Combinator as the winter batch of 2011 and started a company called uh, Balanced Payments. That we worked really hard on that one to try to kind of like revolutionize the way marketplace payments work together. Had a transition deal with uh, Stripe in 2015. And kind of just uh, that set me on to kind of like building my next thing here, which was to solve the problem that I had balanced originally. So it turns out that when you start building and innovating in regulated industries, not only do you have to go through a lot of the re- industry regulation hoops and uh, barriers to entry itself, there's also a secondary barrier to entry just to be able to operate in that space, right? And one of them requires you to just have your data security your data privacy, your data compliance regulations set. And so you end up, every company ends up repeating the same process. They end up building a shadow company internally. You know, let's be very honest, like no one starts a business to be audited, right? And so the idea is that, you know, when starting that business is super hard today, and data security compliance and these privacy regulations just make it even harder, right? And so we, at Balanced, we spent about a million dollars up front. So if you raised $2 a million, million of it went just to building your security posture, your data compliance, your data security, your data privacy. And then you had to spend about three months of the year managing the security patches, all these different things, and kind of like the operational expenditure of having to maintain that environment yourself, just so that we can innovate in a payment space. Right, so if you're innovating in the healthcare space, you have to do something very similar. If you're doing anything in fintech, you have to do something very similar. And so it turns out companies are basically building these DIY solutions just to go to market. So they have to build a secondary company inside of their own company. This is what we call shadow companies, just to go to market. And so in 2015, what ended up happening was companies reached out to us after they heard about this deal with Stripe, and they were like, "Hey, is it possible that we could have your help building exactly what you're looking for?" you know exactly what you did at balance but remove the payments processing piece we want to do card issuing instead so when you ask around like why doesn't anybody else do this it turns out that security for a lot of the companies that operate you know on sensitive data Companies that sell or are in the security space, they're like going after the enterprises, they're building things for deployments, they're selling you boxes. And you know, in the era of AWS today, in the era of like pushing a button, deploying your code, you need to be able to for sure you know, just go to market and just avoid this undifferentiated heavy lifting, right? And so you need to have a Stripe-like experience or a Twilio-like experience or an Amazon Web Services experience. such so that your data security, your compliance, your privacy goes, with, you know, it's undifferentiated. You basically like say, I want to just achieve my business outcomes and have this stuff check the box. And that's the big realization that kind of like helped us understand very good security and help us build this company today. So, that's kind of the story on and how we got here and what we've built along the way. But yeah, definitely had built a couple of companies before this, had a couple of exits. But really, this one is where we think we're making the biggest impact, you know, as an organization.
0: That's super interesting. And and it's a story that we see, right? Uh repeated in, in different areas. I mean, Slack is one example. Forget what the company did, but they built this. Messaging service, yeah. right? And then they realize, you know, that was more valuable for this shadow company they had built internally. And we have the same in fintech. We have Avanta Mount or Pedal Prism. And, and there's just so many other examples. So I think that's fascinating. Before we go into very good security, you mentioned going through YC a decade ago, right? I mean, we've had Michael Siebel and Dalton Caldwell talk about. YC, but you know, that's YC today. How about 10 years ago? Like, uh, what was your experience going through the program?
1: Oh, you know, I got to tell you, if you haven't started a company before, you absolutely should try to go to YC, right? It's just like a different way of thinking about things, right? Because some of us could go to Wharton, (laughs) some of us. Have to learn by doing, right? And so, yeah. and YC is more for the folks that can do, and then ultimately, you know, apply uh, the learnings that you folks are learning, you know, at, at Wharton in real life, right? And I think it's like, because ultimately, it's probably what you're going to You're probably going to go down an entrepreneurship route in the future, and I guess as a lot of Wharton graduates do this too, right? But my, you know, what- not
0: as many as I would hope. <laughs> but, but but yes, but it's probably the
1: path, right? Or end up being like executives at management of big companies or whatever. But really, the idea is that the easiest way to learn business, the shortcut is to do it, right? And yeah. having that network to fall back on and just listen and learn and speak to the folks who have done it, really, is kind of like, you know, the hard... The school of heart knocks MBA. Does that make sense? I just getting it yeah. done. And so I think that was really helpful because it was allowing me as an engineer by trade to just take the way I think about things and translate them to a different industry that I was not very aware of. That being said, it was really, you know, ultimately, you know if you went to a normal engineer and talked to him about, Hey, what's the strategy in your company? First thing that would come up to me would be like strategy. Hmm. Is this like a chess game? Do I need to like write out my moves ahead of time? And so just, you know, understanding that like, no, 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 let's take a look at like a case study of like Southwest strategies, like Which is like, let's build a plane that's like a school bus, like a big bus, a commuter bus have really cheap budget airports and, fly the same plane such that we don't have to like maintain a class of a different class. Like that's a strategy, right? That they apply that they were like at scale, it should become profitable. And that's kind of like the thing that you miss out on uh, if you're trying to do this as an engineer, but going to YC, you get like real time, here's what's happening right now. Here's a company that's literally raising. That's going to tell you what's going on. Or here's a company that's just sold. that's going to tell you what's going on. And so I feel like that was like something that was missing in my learning when I took like a business class in college, which by the way, I went to a fantastic school, the University of Maryland College Park has this Robert H. Smith School of Business. And, you know, I took a couple of classes there and it was fascinating, but like, again, nothing beats at least I'm a a learner by doing. And so I did something and that's kind of like why I think the YC community and being able to start that right away is like just a fascinating uh, experience for an individual.
0: Amazing. Amazing. I mean we, we've had we've had a few guests who went through YC and they all they all have very positive things to say. So talking about uh, very good security, you know maybe you can tell us about the initial business model, right, over five, six years ago, versus how it looks today, and how has that evolution progressed?
1: Yeah. Uh, so we're on a v- mission to protect the world's information. So let's say Google's on a mission to organize the world's information. VGS is on a mission to protect the world's information, right? And make it useful in the same way that you and I use money today, right? So what that means is that if I'm exchanging cash with you or I'm sending you cash, it's not, you said you're in Philly, right? And so I'm not going to like hop on a plane, fly to you and then give you the money and then fly back. Like that's very inefficient, right? But if you look back a hundred years before the invention of like visa and you know the way we clear things today that's what the way people exchange cash right they put it on big trucks and they moved it from point a to point b and so you know and ultimately if you ended up getting robbed on the way of transportation that value disappeared that's why you had like the wild wild west right like all these different bandits and stuff like that and so ultimately by building infrastructure to move value without having to physically move the currency we were able to make it such that we can build the economy that we depend on today, right? And so we take that same principle and try to say, well, moving payment instruction is just moving data that is the class of payments, right? Why can't we move data of any type in a very similar way that we move payments data? And if you take that very powerful concept, you start to realize that you can separate value of data from the custodianship of data itself and it operates and it follows very similar to how banks work today right and the reason why i want to make this clear is your question was how has your business model changed and honestly the conversation needs to be kind of like rephrased as what ways Are we thinking about data and how has that changed over the past six, seven years? Right. And so data is an asset and will continue to be an asset. And if we said time is constant, which is not, then it is still an asset. But assets depreciate. And so the depreciation value of data has an external dependency, which is the regulation that moves in a completely orthogonal and Potentially completely different way than your data, right? And so a pen signing of a law can depreciate your asset significantly, right? So the problem becomes in order for you to continue maintaining the value of the data that you have on your balance sheet, you have to start investing more and more and more capital such that you can continue to translate the asset that you have, which is your data, and continue to make it an asset right? to offset the depreciation. However, what's happening now is that that cost of doing that initially is very high to the point where it might not be worth it for you to continue. So realistically, what has happened is it has crossed the barrier from data has crossed the barrier from being an asset to a liability. So now it's a liability on your books. It's a risk. It's a fine generating liability, right? And it's something that you woke up without, you know, you might be in the business of e commerce and now you woke up and now you're a data security company, right? And it's so like, that's a problem, right? Because you don't have the skill set, the expertise. You know, I think it's kind of ridiculous that that's kind of expected on all of our companies. However, I could totally see it as a consumer. That is needed, right? Because we feel like we're being exploited, our data is being exploited today. So, again, I'm prefacing this with how does business model change? And it really changed with are you trying to, you know, it starts with the journey of the customer. The customer's trying to say, I need to solve a compliance problem. So, your goal is to say, let's make it as simple as possible, frictionless, zero touch. Let's get you into the platform and start using the product right away. And so the thing is, the customer will take two options. They'll say, hey, and this is a hard realization, right? Because before we would be preaching zero data, you don't need your data to extract its value. But customers would be like, I don't understand what you're saying. I need my data, right, to extract its value. I just need like a checkbox solution or something to make me just like, you know, comply with whatever regulation that I have to do, which is fine. But it's not the spirit of the compliance, right? Compliance is not a checkbox. The whole point of compliance is it's a security first, and the compliance is an outcome, right? Like the whole point is like, if you're secure, compliance should be an outcome. And so the whole idea is that we need to then just solve the customer journey there. So what started with, let's just get you compliant, really became, let's try to tell you about why you don't need to focus on compliance but data security first, and customers just it did not resonate. What they wanted was, I need the checkbox because I have to go to market. And that turned out to be kind of like our initial land. Our initial lands are, you know, anywhere between 20 to 30k. You land in there and you basically try to say, Hey, I'm gonna get you your checkbox. Don't worry about it. Right. What that does is that now gives you an opportunity to have this customer. You know, they're now a customer. right? And it much, it's much easier, as you know from Wharton, that it's easier to take a customer and expand a current contract because you're now a trusted vendor. And salary than, services. Uh, that's right. And so what you do is then you basically start the educational campaign after you've solved your initial problem right away. And that's the campaign that's basically going to take that 20K and bump it up to a 60, 80, 100K ACV because you start showing them that the liability on their books is expanding. And the way that they're going about the problem in the first place is just not going to scale over time. And But they won't have time to realize this unless they're growing a business, right? And so you have to catch the customer's journey where they are. So The business model changed from let me just tell you about zero data to let me educate you and meet you where you are in your journey so that you could start realizing that your data is an asset and VGS will help you unlock its value without any of the liability with it, right? Now, that's a very complicated end goal when all you're looking for is like a policy and a compliance checkbox, right? But it's a way... For, we've basically built a journey so that so we can help customers really understand where we're going and then help customers realize that we can help their value of their data accelerate on very good security than without very good security. And that's the real idea here is like, can we make security and compliance from a business blocker to a business enabler? Does that make sense? And so that's yeah, that's yeah. that's how the product, that's how the go to market, that's how the sales structure started initially.
0: No, that's fascinating. And, you know, as you mentioned, compliance is driven by regulation, but we all know that regulation is often late, right? Mm -hmm. At least in large markets, that that can be the case. When you think about that and, and you think about ancillary products that go beyond the minimum requirements of regulation, at least U.S. regulation, and you take a step back and you look at the entire globe right are there any examples of other markets that you think are doing interesting jobs not to put one that's better to, to another but just other markets where you think you know they they they're thinking about security and privacy regulation the the right way no interesting there
1: there are, there are none right i think it's going to become i think regulation always has unintended side effects. It always does, right? And what we're seeing is, and this is actually so fascinating, right? Is that if you have the deep pockets to satisfy those regulations, you can continue executing your business today. But if you don't have that deep pockets, you end up basically being a target for potential enforcement action against you. And it could become catastrophic to your brand. When you're a startup, you're cutting corners in something to go live, right? And so the problem is regulation is effectively saying, if you cut this corner, you're taking a risk. And if you get called on this risk and enforcement actually comes to you, you could potentially lose the whole thing. So like why put an entrepreneur or somebody that's really putting a lot of it on, uh, at stake in a position where they have to take that calculated risk. They have to basically be like, hmm, what if I ignore this? Well, this would be a problem. And so regulation is in fact, you know, it could be a detriment to innovation. And it's really kind of like also part of our sales process is very similar. It's to show them, is to show our customers, like, here's some stuff on the roadmap that you effectively did not decide to do. Because you were like, there's too much regulation involved. I don't want to be able to do it right. And so then you basically scrapped an experience for a customer that potentially could have like 10x, 20x, 100x usability at that top line increase to just because the fear of regulation was enough to become a deterrent for you to actually execute on this goal. And so that's a real problem. That's a real problem. I mean, if we're talking about innovation, then how can you innovate if you're stifled by regulation? And so what we really need to think about is like, we have to, and so this is where I'm like, it can't just be regulation. It has to almost be like a living document or like a living standard such that folks realize that, you know, they can just apply the standard and just move on with their lives, right? Because what happens is, you just mentioned the United States, right? Every state in the United States is going to have its own regulation. In fact, California Consumer Privacy Act, when it passed, Hawaii passed its own. Virginia just passed its own. The California, which you call CCPA, actually, there's another CCPA, the Colorado Consumer Protection Act, that one. New York has the S.H.I.E.L.D. Act, right? Every state. So now, you know, if I'm in one state, I might not be able to use the same five words if they represent sensitive data. If I'm in New York City, for example, those represent sensitive data. So now... It's becoming a very, very complicated process to just do business today. So we went from we're a very friendly business environment to it's not friendly any longer. In fact, there are really serious fines and consequences if you mess this up. But I got to say, I think the intent of the regulation is okay because it's trying to say consumers, here's all those things that you could do to ensure confidence in transacting or in, in, in using these products and that's okay that's the job of regulation but i think it's it's well intentioned i think it's poorly executed does that make sense
0: yeah yeah and and are you collaborating with the regulators no not yet right and so
1: but i do think there's an opportunity given that we have a commercial product that is you know we power almost 600 700 customers and all of their data sits on vgs right and so what's really cool about that is that this is not like a It's not like a crazy idea any longer. It actually exists, right? And so if we become default infrastructure, I think we're looking to make sure that we can maximize the value of like, let's say 80, 90% of the data's value on VGS and then, then start having those conversations with regulators because it's just like the fintech space. If you map what we are, a data processor is literally like, there's a data acquirer, there's a data processor, there's a data gateway, right? It's a oh, start going down the whole payment stack. But what's the issuer? What's the data issuer? It's basically a government entity that issues that data, right? And so it's like, you know, Google could become a data issuer if they issue a Gmail address, if that's PII, right? But really, when we think about data issuers, we're talking about like driver's licenses, personally identifiable information, healthcare records, right? Doctors, right? And so there are certain institutions that can issue PII data and so just like we map it to the fintech space what's a data issuer and i think this is where you start to think about okay if you're going to start issuing data here's the way that the standards and the regulation and the way you need to comply with these different pieces of information i think that's where you start working with the regulators but i think it has to be mapped to industries that are already established because that's what's going on if you take a step back and you just look at congress they are literally passing the same type of regulation that they passed for money transmission, but they're passing it for sensitive data today, but they don't know that there's a link in the same way. It's like like two different parties that are doing it. Right. And so, but they're doing this They're coming to very similar conclusions. And so I really think that's really what's going to happen is like, maybe, you know, you're going to see if you treat data as money, a lot of these things, a lot of these frameworks that exist to govern money movement today are going to exist tomorrow to govern what data movement today, right? And there's going to be standards like NACHA, Fedwire, like, okay, what's those standards for, you know, data movement, right? What does that, what's a clearinghouse look like, right? Stuff like this. And I think that's where we're going to start to really start to see VGS's collaboration with, the, with these
0: federal entities. And and tell us about this uh, six to 700 clients, right? I, mm. I, is there a typical client or, or they come in all shapes and sizes?
1: They're, they're all shapes and sizes. I, we could talk a little. I, I have a couple of like really good favorites. So on our website, verygoodsecurity.com, we have case studies of like lots of these real awesome like, clients. Some of these are like big public companies that are trying to... Their product managers have a product line that they're trying to achieve an outcome on. So let's say you want to build a card issuing product. Okay, here's what you do. You go to Google, you're like, how do I build a card issuing product, right? You find like there's already pre-existing, issuer processors like Marketa or or FIS or ITC, you're like, I'll just use those. So you call them up and they're either going to tell you two things, either A, where's your data security posture, or B, you're beholden to their loyalty programs their data security uh, widgets because you have to embed their widgets because they take you out of scope. And so by definition, you can't control the user experience. So I basically have to use these companies or I have to do a significant portion of work just so I can you know, embed that functionality into my existing line of business, right? And so a surprising amount of people choose you will do the work. <laughs> so what ends up happening is you end up basically extending the timeline of embedding this functionality by a year, two years. Like I remember one company, the beginning of the company's history, we went to a really big company, like billion-dollar-plus company, and we were telling them about VGS, and they're like, "Yeah, no, we can't. We're not going to try. We're not going to use you. Okay, we lost this deal. And so their competitors used VGS, and they were in, t- in market within weeks right i just heard and we had a shared investor that sat on their board i heard something like four months ago that they're still not done with their diy and so that's the opportunity cost the opportunity cost is going to market literally vgs adds value just by connecting you to your vendor right but that's not all we do right so when you go and you're like i need to issue those cards right let me go back to that card issuing example This like year or two years that you have to add onto your roadmap, just lopping it right off, that's fine. But also, what about the continued maintenance? What if the regulation changes? For example, PCI, that's going to go, the version 4.0 specification and standard is going to go live next year. Okay, well, how many people are still PCI 3.0? A lot of people are, right? So will they be able to upgrade, right? It's crazy. And so it's just like, there's just so much that goes into operational expenditure here that and maintenance that I think it's just better if you use something like a VGS in the same way that when you have a heart problem, you go to a cardiologist, you don't go to a dentist. So it's like, it's very similar. It's just like the specialties. And I think that's a really important point. It's like these customers can search from all different sizes, all different shapes, right? All different budgets, but it all comes down to one thing. How can I go to market quickly and this data security compliance or data privacy problem should get out of my way. It's all this, it's that's the same underlying thesis that they're trying to solve or' trying
0: to problem that they're trying to solve for. Does that make sense? Absolutely. It makes a ton of sense and I can see your passion in the problem, which is which is fascinating. One aspect we haven't talked about a lot is your your company culture. But I know that on Twitter, You've mentioned multiple times that you know you you love working with a team that's customer obsessed, right? Absolutely. Yeah. How do you find what's what are the processes that you employ, right, to recruit these people?
1: I gotta tell you, at VGS, values are very important. We have a channel in our Slack channel called Praise. And one of the things when you praise someone tells you, hey, tell us the values that this person exhibited, right? And so you know, one of the, so I, I'll recite to you our values from my memory, right? So like I know them by heart. Right? So the number one value is security first, right? Like the first thing that people do is they give us their sensitive data. So it's a 100%, make sure that they're that is something that we have to keep. very it's like um, there's a word in Arabic called amana. It's basically um, it, you know, it, it's something that you trust someone else with, and you cannot violate that trust, right? So that's the thing that we call security first, right? The second thing is customer obsessed and mission driven. Because security first, that's what we do, right? And then the next thing is customer-obsessed and mission-driven. Our goal is to get our customers to succeed through our mission. If we are just selling you our mission because we have a mission and we're not adding value to you, then what's the point of this mission, right? The whole point of our customer obsession is our goal is to make our customers succeed so that we can easily go out and say, customers are succeeding because they don't have to worry about a problem that they gave us now. So our goal is to make customers successful. So you have that as a commitment. So when you go to someone who wants to say, I want to join a company to do something that has no bearing on making our customers successful, you start to immediately realize that that person might not be a culture fit, right? Because they're trying to achieve something for themselves instead of the customer. And that's very, very important to realize that, right? The second thing is simple over complex. That's the third value, right? So what does simple over complex mean, right? So... You have to make sure your products are super simple. They have to be super simple because complex, complex products introduce bugs. So when you ask these different questions, are the folks that we're hiring are they able to break down complex problems and articulate them in a simple way, right? And so that's again the reason we do that is because it feeds into the customer obsession, right? So how do you get customer obsession? So it goes. It honestly starts with hiring. And then, so let's say the third one is ship and refine, right? Like how can you add value to customers faster and refine it later? What is the smallest piece of value that you can ship? And this is from YC, right? What uh, Paul Graham would always say like, what is the infinitesimal piece of value that can add, that you can give someone that you can ship, right? And then launch, right? And so that's kind of like in our culture as well. Again, value to customer, (laughs) value to customer, Right authentic and resilient. right? It goes back to security first. How do you hire people who are authentic and resilient enough to withstand criticism and feedback such that they realize that the reason why they'll do that is what they'll be able to disagree and commit. They'll have real debates with you because they're passionate, but that's kind of like you want people who really are authentic in this mission, but also are resilient enough to realize that if something is not going their way, they're willing to agree with teamwork. And then the other two ones are very important, right? Distributed first, you know, in a world of COVID, this value has been with us for four years, five years now. And so in a world of COVID, this value obviously makes a lot of sense, but it starts at the top. If I'm sitting there and I'm speaking without realizing that other people are on camera, if we were all in the office, for example, and there's a few folks who are distributed who are listening in, and I'm not paying attention to whether the mic is here, the mic's falling. like, they will feel isolated. So how can I have them be customer obsessed, for example, if I'm not thinking about them as well? Because they are effectively folks that have joined in this mission, and I want to make sure that we... So it's very important to make sure that distributed first is is a value. And the last one, probably one of the more... I would say catch all values that we have is empower to find a way, right? You just, we want to make sure you find a way to just not, obviously it's the last one for a reason because it shouldn't violate any of the ones that we just spoke about. But the whole point of this is like, Hey, find a way. Don't let perfect be the enemy of good. You know, find a way to get things done, find a way to ship and refine, find a way to unblock yourself. Right. And so, and that's really the idea. Again, how do you find a way to be customer-obsessed? And so everything permeates our values such that we can tie it back to customer obsession. And we always ask, like, what do we expect the customers to say? What do we expect the customers to do? Like, And who are our customers? Because it's not just you know, individual consumers and in businesses. It could be like the compliance person that's running a compliance program wants to be able to just make sure that they're able to get a handle on certain things. So we think that that's kind of like really important. Like we build a culture of customer obsession slowly, brick by brick, and the way it works is by having every piece of the company become customer obsessed. Does that make
0: sense? yeah, and and you mentioned you know building it brick by brick day by day, right? Yeah. I guess that ties with my next question, which was gonna be your reflections on the entrepreneurial journey. I mean we we have listeners. From different parts of the globe, who are you know embarking on that journey? They're either building already or considering building. You've done this a number of times. You know what comes to mind? What are some of those reflections you'd like to share with aspiring entrepreneurs?
1: Oh, you know, first of all, be comfortable with rejection, right? Like it's important. Again, I go back to authentic and resilient, right? Like go back. Like you're gonna get a lot of notes. Do you know how many times people laughed at me at this company? Like the first thing people said was like, "Ha! No one's gonna give you your data. That's crazy. It's a lot. It's, you know, it's an asset. Like why would we give you your data? That's nuts." Okay, well, seven hundred customers later, we <laughs> we have data right from a lot of Fortune five hundred companies, public companies. You know, uh, it's fascinating, right? And so, be when you're an entrepreneur. You see the world a little bit different than the traditional folks do and uh, you know they listen to experts as an entrepreneur your job is to basically make experts say like oh i didn't think about it this way right does that make sense and so i i think it's very important for folks to just realize that it's a journey it's lonely and but it's so so awesome when you actually break when, when you can see it through right and people will come work for you for that the next thing is always always realize that like you're always going to be embarrassed of your product. Of You're going to be embarrassed about your website. You're always going to be... Nothing's going to be good enough. And so the thing I advise is ship and refine. Find one person that finds value to it and just get it in their hands, right? And do that until you get to 100 people that talk about scaling, right? Because like most people go, like, well, it doesn't scale. I'm like, okay, well, that's great. Let's have it at least hit 100 people first. And then we can talk about scaling then. Let's defer that conversation later, right? And so, and that's my point. Is like, I think it's important. And those two things are important for people to realize, like be okay with rejection and do things that are not going to scale. And I mean, literally have like, it might be cheaper to have human beings in a low cost of living city than programming or writing an application, right? So when you say building, it's not about building product or building a company. It's about building value. So what's the easiest way you can get value in the hands of someone? Because that's the valuable part. That's why we call it value, right? It's not about writing code. It's not about building websites. It's not about writing copy. It's about building value, solving a problem. And so what is the fastest way to build value and deliver it into the customer's hand, right? And I think that's the right way to think about it. And, and you know, everything else is a non-issue. You'll find a way. To do it right, everything else is not an issue. But those two things are very, very important. I love mentoring. I love helping. So, if anybody that wants any kind of advice, feel free to ping me on Twitter or email me. I'm, I'll, I'd love doing that for them.
0: That's amazing. And, and you know, it's no secret that a lot of entrepreneurs are immigrants, right? Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of immigrants end up being entrepreneurs. I mean, that's the case for you. You you arrived to this country without even knowing how to speak the language, right? What kind of impact has that immigrant journey had, you know, on on you as a founder?
1: I got to tell you, I don't even know how to describe that. I don't think I would be where I am today without my immigrant being an immigrant, right? It's just like, just realizing that you really have nothing to lose. The second thing is, you know, there's this hunger to prove, you know, but also like, look, Immigrating from one country to the other is not the problem. It's like immigrating to a country that's going to reward you on merit, right, or reward you, let's say, on achievements, I think is like a very fair compensating control to bridge the gap between, you know, wealth or whatever, right? But the point is like, you know, economic uh, hardships, And if you're given an opportunity, but, you know, I'm very privileged, like the way I'm privileged is like, listen, I have a family that loves me. I have two parents. They're still alive. You know, I have have sisters. I have a support structure. So I'm very thankful and blessed in this way. Right. There's some things that, you know, you can't be as an immigrant. It's just hard for you. Right. That being said, like, you know, with all things being equal, the hunger that you have to prove yourself so, so you can establish your presence in a new country. Right. So that you're comfortable is the thing that's driving you. And that is a, you know, life or death, that is a make it or lose it situation that if you're not, if you're born already in a country where you don't appreciate the freedoms that this country gives you, for example, or again, I'm specifically talking about the United States, I don't know what it's like to like immigrate to Europe, for example, or whatever. But you start to appreciate this opportunity, and you start to see opportunities everywhere, right? And that's really the beautiful part about the United States is that you can just—it's not longer about where you are, who you're the son or the daughter of, right? It doesn't matter about that, right? It's all about what have you delivered, what have you made as value, and the kind of like what's your work ethic, and that's that's something that just happily translates to the right skill set. Of endurance, of resilience, right? In any obstacle that you'll face, because you you faced a lot of obstacles as an immigrant, right? Just being able to speak the language first is just the first of many obstacles, right? Uh, being able to afford food, being able to like you know pay for your housing, right? And that's and that's that's the kind of stuff that you you're like if things go awry, you're always like oh I've, I've dealt with worse, I've dealt with and I'm doing better thankfully, than a significant portion of the world, right? And so it's like, so I think as immigrants, you're always looking at the small things and the small victories that you've had in your life because you've already had a victory. You've immigrated, right? You've immigrated. And that's the victory right there. So you always fall back on that. You're like, you know what? I'm still doing better. And that's what encourages you for the next generation of immigrants to look at you as a role model to say, Hey, you know what? I want to be better than him. Great. I want the next generation to be better than me, better than you. I want them to be better than us because that's what we're building for, right? We're going to go. The world is for them. It's for our children. Right. And so we want them to come in and realize like, Hey, this dream is still alive. And as long as we have people like us, like immigrants who come in and create this value, that's the thing that's going to make America great. Right. It's going to think them it's going to be a thing that's going to help bridge and create opportunities for people that don't have those opportunities. Does that make sense?
0: Oh, I love it. I love it. And and you know, it's I always say here in the US, it's not so much where you're coming from and, or like what's your last name, but it's where are you going, right? Yeah. So to me as a as a fellow immigrant, that's always inspiring. And, you know, this is a topic that I love to talk about. But uh Mahmoud, cannot thank you enough for for joining us. Extremely interesting conversation. And I know the audience will love it. And you're now a friend of of the show, a friend of Warton. <laughs> so you know that you're always invited. There's an open invitation. Oh, thank
1: you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And I'm, I'm glad that I'm able to share with you a small part of the story. And hopefully, it helps somebody along the way because that's also what we do this for, right?
0: Absolutely. Thank you, Mahmoud. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Warton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. It means a lot and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our FinTech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton FinTech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. We also want to extend a special thank you to our show editor, Rafael Ostria. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armaza.